I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Hello, this is Bill, and welcome to episode 36 of Chasing Ghost in a Regular Warfare podcast. Today's episode is entitled Drunk on Direct Action, the Destruction of Army Special Forces in the Global War on Terror. Before we get started with that, I have a little bit of housekeeping to do. My podcast cadence has consistently been fortnightly, so I've decided that on occasion, I can't guarantee that I'll do it every other week, but I plan on writing essays on my Substack that you can find. You can find my Substack if you go to Substack and look for Chasing Ghosts in a Regular Warfare podcast with Bill Bupert. And the nice thing about that is that I have uploaded every episode I have done up to this point, to include this one, once I publish it tomorrow morning. And what you're able to do is leave comments, uh, make recommendations, suggestions. Maybe we can have a friendly, gentlemanly banter uh, and uh, rhetorical clashing of the swords, as it were, with disagreements on things that I've stated or notions that would improve the narrative or the things that we're trying to achieve with this podcast. If you wish to get in touch with me, you can get in touch with me via that substack I just described, or you can contact me at my email, which is cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. For this podcast, I wanted to do a shout-out and salute two of my correspondents and listeners, both of whom are members of the Special Forces Brotherhood, and uh, one of them I served with, one I was introduced to by the fellow I served with, and we have had some really great conversations on why Special Forces in the Army and Special Operations Forces in the Army and the entirety of the DOD have gone, gone so off the rails in achieving what not only they originally set out to do, but being effective in making America and the West more secure and more efficacious in the pursuit of military objectives, which of course lead to national security objectives. So I wanted to shout out to, that would be J.U. and J.S. And uh, guys, DOL, and thank you for the great conversations we've been having especially JS, you and I have now known each other, can you believe it, going on three decades. Uh, look forward to chatting with you again this week or next. So with that, we will begin this episode. Now, some of my listeners have been listening to this sequentially from episode one. Some may have dabbled in other episodes and skip some and whatever the case may be. I can't say that I have necessarily started these podcast episodes from episode one in a linear or non-linear fashion that connects them directly, but there is a certain underlying, underlying narrative connective tissue throughout all of this, and that is this. I am not speaking to the fact that we need to eliminate special operations forces or army special forces. I am speaking to the fact that they need to go back to their roots 
and they need to go back to what made them so unique, so different, and so eminently capable through a long loiter training pipeline, the volunteering for going to, let's say, ranger school, SF school, getting your airborne certification, and all the specialties that one could get once you're in the U.S. Army Special Operations Command, USASOC, for instance, or out of SOCOM, which is the umbrella rubric for all the special operations forces to include JSOC, which is the dark side of SF. And as you know, from listening to previous podcast episodes, I don't tarry on the dark side. I don't discuss it. I discuss vanilla special operations forces, and we will continue to do so. For those who aren't aware, and I have talked about this in the past, but this just so happens to be the first episode you are listening to with me, then uh, welcome aboard. I hope that you take a chance to Take a gander at other episodes that I've done previously. See if anything piques your interest, and you may find it um, something scintillating. Let's review very quickly. What I'm going to talk about today is U.S. Army Special Forces, which is under the U.S. Army Special Forces Command, which is called USASOC in Fort Bragg. No, I will not use the new designator. Uh, You've got 1st, 3rd, 5th, 7th, 10th Special Forces Group. You've got 19th and 20th, which are the two National Guard Special Forces Groups. Of these 19th and 20th, they're the ones that once my alumnus, one of my alumnus, I am a first group alumnus, but my alumnus from the reserves is the now defunct 12th Special Forces Group. And the 11th and 12th Special Forces Groups were reserve Special Forces Groups whose manpower and entire mission sets were folded into the National Guard 19th and 20th Group. Now, each of these organizations has a headquarters and headquarters company. You're talking roughly 100 to 130 men, possibly. Then you've got the 1st Battalion, which is uh, forward deployed in 1st Group, for instance, and therefore deployed in Okinawa. The other forward deployed battalion that's outside of CONUS for special forces in the U.S. Army would be 1st the 10th. That is in what used to be Batolz and is now Stuttgart in Germany. And they each have their own regional monikers and places that they uh, tend to circulate in and conduct their business. There used to be three battalions. There are now four battalions. There is a group support battalion at the flagpole. And, of course, there's usually a chemical recon detachment. It's um, a low-density personnel organization, and they tend to be the ones that help them with one of the mission sets that SF has. Those five mission sets are unconventional warfare, foreign internal defense, direct action, counterterrorism, and special reconnaissance. Now, I've covered these in-depth in the past. I would urge you to go to my past episodes. Specifically, if you wish, you can go to the one I did on the disposition and composition of U.S. Army Special Forces, and I discussed this in a lot of detail. Today, what I want to concentrate on is just one of those five, which is direct action, which, by the way, you heard me mention counterterrorism, and direct action and counterterrorism are married and harnessed to each other in a specific fashion. Hence, after the 1979 debacle in the desert in Iran, SOCOM came about by 1985-1986, JSOC, the Joint Special Operations Command, which is the command that has what used to be called Delta, I think they're called CAG, and the Dark Forces of SF, the shooters and, and the assaulters and, and, and the entire very sophisticated logistical and intelligence networks that enable those folks to go in and conduct the kind of engagements that they do on what appears to be 
a frequent basis. So here's my bottom line up front, and I wanted to thank JS for the title to this episode, Drunk on DA, because he brilliantly came up with that very catchy phrase. Because he and I are of the same mind that special forces, with its original charter of being able to go behind enemy lines and conduct unconventional warfare by raising partisan forces and conducting what they would ordinarily do as permissive area foreign internal defense in denied areas, non-permissive areas, areas in which one could say that they are probably surrounded, especially in the emerging near-peer and peer fights. These kind of stay-behind forces, uh, flanking and rear area forces that are on the blue side that will be conducting the kind of operations that we would characterize as strategic compression, which is using tactical teams, which tend to be low density in personnel, but with heavy logistical footprints behind, and actually achieving strategic and even grand strategic results. I remember many times when JS and I would meet on the ground in Afghanistan, and we would discuss this, and we would hang our heads and just wonder at the fact that you take this magnificent Army Special Forces organization that does the things I just described and conducts the kind of unorthodox and very eccentric to big Army mission sets that their rank and file simply cannot achieve. Hence, for one thing, the long training pipeline. The fact that Special Forces started out and uh, continued to be a non-accession branch until they had 18 Zulus come in. Now, what non-accession means is that you wanted to have folks on the ground conducting these kind of missions, especially in UW, which is more fantastical than it sounds because they simply don't practice it. You wanted to have mature folks who were in their mid-20s to their 30s. They'd got their vim and vigor out. They were reasonable, de-escalators, had a cultural IQ, knew what it was about to be in an area where there were guests, knew what it was to take as mentors, coaches, and teachers the skill sets they had as first world, first tier special operators and being able to build partisan forces behind enemy lines or building partisan forces that could be inserted behind enemy lines. This is an extraordinarily difficult talent stack to build in young men, over the age of 25 preferably, that you are going to send into the hazard because they have to have a cultural IQ, they have to be very intelligent, they have to know how to use intelligence, they have to be familiar with the language, mores, and the moral topography of the ground that they're going to be covering and the people that they're going to be allied with and the folks that they're going to be training and how they can use a rippling effect by training the trainer. And let's suppose that they train a company or they train a battalion strength organization. And one of the things that they would want to do is ensure that in the milieu that they're fighting, that they also keep their eye out for folks who are especially good students that they're mentoring and coaching to develop these guerrilla forces and use them in a train-the-trainer organization so that they can take indigs and send them out and have them be a force multiplier beyond even what they're doing at the time on the piece of ground that they own to start building these forces and gather the, the momentum and get the mass they need to have the kind of strategic effects behind enemy lines that we would expect them to do. 
But the problem with all of this is that as sexy and efficacious as, and wonderful as that sound sounds, SF doesn't do that. UW, unconventional warfare, is the most neglected part of everything that they do at the schoolhouse and everything they do in deployed missions planet-wide. What you find with the other ones, foreign internal defense, direct action, counterterrorism, and special reconnaissance, is that with foreign internal defense, what you tend to have is what they characterize as unconventional warfare tends to be foreign internal defense on steroids in permissive environments. That is not unconventional warfare in the sense that you are trying to raise partisan forces or train other militaries behind enemy lines in non-permissive areas in active combat which I guarantee you is going to emerge in the near to intermediate future if we get in this conflict with near peer and peer organizations and nation states. For instance, I would call on all of you, the reason you're here is because you have an interest in things military and military history. That's why you're listening to my bloviations. I would urge you to grok this. What you're seeing in the Ukraine and what you're seeing in Russia is the first time in the 21st century in which a near peer and a peer conflict is taking place. There is a laboratory there for all to see, the West, the NATO, America, the Russians, and the Russians are taking notes. The Russians are here engaging in this, and they're doing three very interesting things. Number one, we're seeing generational and dynamic improvement capacities for the munitions and weapons that they've employed on the battlefield. For instance, if you look at the Lancet's generation one, two, and three of their loitering munitions to destroy tanks and such, they've really gone off the chain as far as being able to produce these and at a run, at a sprint, in wartime, they are actually improving their munition sets and they're also able to capitalize on and really even improve the Russian strike reconnaissance complex, which the West has nothing to match. And that, that Russian strike reconnaissance complex, thank you, Lister Growl, is something that I'm going to discuss in a future episode. But all it comes down to is this. How can I put metal on target in a given amount of time in re near real time with the closest, most efficacious munition on the target that is actionable at that moment that is reported to me through an integrated and active ISR network. But all that being the case, what am I getting at? What am I after with this episode when I say drunk on DA, the destruction of US Army Special Forces in the GWAT, the global war on terror in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Libya, in Syria, in the Horn of Africa, in other godforsaken military shit pits planet-wide? What am I getting at? What I'm getting at is that as sexy as it is, because I am a man of the gun, I love guns, I love shooting, I've been a competitive shooter, I spent a lot of time around guns in the Army, I spent a lot of time around guns out of the Army. I love them, I build them, I shoot them, I think that I'm rather competent with them, I have friends who are rather competent with them, I take professional training courses when I can. For the uh, most part, I'm going to give a shout out to Bob Keller at Gamut Resolutions, who happens to be my neighbor here in Florida now, about an hour and a half north of me, who does the very best training that I've had since I've gotten out of the military. And my sons and I would take a 
course from him on an annual basis, a private course, and uh, that was in Arizona. Since then, we, we haven't done so, but I hope to get together with him sometime. I urge all of my listeners, if you are a man of the gun or a woe man of the gun, get training. Get good quality training. Pay for good quality training. And as yet another shout-out to Bob Keller, who is probably one of the best shooters I've ever shot with, he got me addicted to three-inch DOD targets, which are three-inch dots that I do all my training on because aim small, miss small, and the improvement in my accuracy and speed has been phenomenal for me, although my youngest son is a world-class shooter and his speed is, is existentially better than mine. Anyhow, I say all that because the, the homage to my SF brotherhood is that for the most part, we love guns. And what happens with direct action is that you are kicking down doors, you're delivering night letters, you're shooting people in the face, you're doing renditions, you're taking people down in the middle of the night at 0, 0200 hours, 0, 0300 hours, oh dark 30, whatever the case may be. You're, uh, you're, you're grabbing people, gathering them up, taking them to places, doing all that stuff. That became the primary mission because vanilla special forces became, I'm not going to call it jealous, that's not a good, but this is bloody fun to do that. Now, JSOC has that mission. I also have a beef with JSOC doing that kind of thing. And the reason I have it is this. When you look at what is required for direct action, for those of you who watch Hollywood movies, maybe you've seen Terminal List or Reacher or some other movies or series on television, it's all about men of the gun kicking down doors and doing things that men of the gun do in a rather savage and violent fashion, and the rush and the adrenaline and everything else that's so appealing about being that guy with a gun, rifle or pistol or whatever kind of weapons and equipment one is using to prosecute that. My emphasis is this. Stop using Army Special Forces to do that. Start using infantry guys to do that because infantry guys can do that, whether they're U.S. Marine 0311 or 11 Bravos in the U.S. Army, which is the uh, our leg infantry, light infantry, airborne infantry, air assault infantry forces. They're trained for this. This is what they do for a living. They move and fire with effect. They, uh, they, they, they lay down fires. There's infantry manuals out there that describe all of these. I still have my copy of my rawhide-bound FM 7-8 squad and platoon infantry operations from my blessed time in the glorious 101st Airborne Division. Still have it. It's on my shelf over here. Great stuff, except for one of the battle drills, which was finally uh, redone so it would stop killing soldiers. But nonetheless... These are not the kind of things that we should take this very exquisite, unique, and unorthodox force of special forces and have them not only atrophy, but probably almost disappear their ability to do what a quiet professional would do, which is to have the intelligence and the cultural IQ and the means to go on long loiter, long dwell mission sets with language capabilities or language interpreters that you have there and conduct force building over a very long period of time, which is what should have happened. Now, there are those who say that with the initial invasion of Afghanistan in October, November, December 
of 2001, shortly after 9-1-1, all we had was special forces organizations, in this case, 5th Special Forces Group in the North with the Northern Alliance, saying, we've got pallets of cash, we've got air support, we've got logistical support, we've even come on horseback and, well, Actually, maybe they didn't come on horseback. Maybe they purchased the horses while they were there. But nonetheless, they brought the uh, proper kit and saddlery and tack to make it so. And even took a course. I think it was in Colorado, where a 5th Special Forces group calls itself home, where they learned to ride horses if they weren't familiar with it. Because for those of you who don't know, riding a horse is not something where you can simply get up in the saddle and you can do it well. It takes months, if not years, of training and intuition building to do it properly. Those of you who are horsewomen and horsemen out there will know exactly what I'm saying. So where did this come from? Where this came from wasn't the GWAT in 2001, this whole direct action mission madness. That's what I characterize it as. I found on the high side, which is a substack. this is from uh, June of 23, Revenge on the Sif, How the Haters Cut Special Forces' Last Link to JSOC. The past and maybe future of the Special Forces in extremist response team. Now, when they say Sif, what that means is uh, Commander's in extremist force. And this is an article by Jack Murphy and Sean Dean Naylor, and I quote, The aftershocks from the Pentagon's 2020 decision to cut the five active duty Special Forces groups' main link to JSOC continue to reverberate with the validation exercises for the group's rebranded counterterrorism companies, new missions starting this summer. Now they're talking 2023 here. Prior to 2020, each group contained a company designed, trained, and resourced to act as a backup to JSOC special mission units, which conduct the U.S. Army's most sensitive counterterrorism missions and U.S. Forces' most sensitive counterterrorism missions, originally called the Commander-in-Chief's in extremer an extremist force. These companies never took part in the sort of hostage rescue operation that was their raison d'etre. However, they helped evacuate U.S. officials from civil unrest in countries such as Sierra Leone and Tajikistan, conducted countless raids against insurgents in Iraq and Afghanistan, and tracked radioactive material during counterproliferation training exercises in Australia. But the SIFs, it's pronounced SIFs, C-I-F, were also a divisive presence in the Special Forces community. Quote, There were a lot of people who thought they were a huge waste of resources, said retired Colonel Mike Kirshner, the former deputy commander of USASOC. Imbued with a direct action ethos that ran counter to the unconventional warfare mindset beloved by many in Special Forces, SIF personnel also came across sometimes as arrogant and all too willing to play the JSOC card, as one former SF officer said, in order to distance themselves from their peers. Probably since the creation of the SIFs, there have been the haters that have been trying to shut them down, said former Acting Defense Secretary and retired Special Forces Officer Chris Miller, who in 2020 signed the paperwork to do away with the company's links to JSOC, but they always had their supporters. End of quote. Now, these SIF companies, when they existed, and I supported one when I was in Okinawa, Japan, in a first, the first Special Forces group, it was one of the forward-deployed SIFs along with the one, its uh, sister company in Germany, they would attend something called Safartech. By the way, that looks like Safartech, but they call it Safartech for obvious reasons. It's the Special Forces Advanced Reconnaissance Target Analysis and Exploitation Techniques course, 
which was basically a CQB plus course, a close quarters battle plus course. Now the SIFs, I think they've been reflagged as hard target defeat companies. And what these SIFs were envisioned to do was that before Delta, CAG, whatever JSOC element was going to be sent to deal with whatever the operation foreshadowed or involved, whether that was a hostage negotiation, a target takedown, the elimination of a high-value target in HVT, whatever the case may be, these would be the guys who would either form a perimeter force or would arrive first in country to be the ADVON, the advanced element, to wait for the Tier 1 unit, CAG, Delta, to arrive to actually conduct the operation. So the conduct of direct action and delivery of night letters and the kicking down doors and the, and the, uh, the CQB, the close quarters battle business that SF primarily seemed to concern itself with throughout the Afghan and Iraq conflicts, for instance, didn't come out of nowhere. It didn't emerge from a vacuum. It had been imbued into the DNA of Army Special Forces and USASOC from the 1980s forward. So it wasn't something that appeared magically by the clicking of red ruby slippers for them to say, hey, let's do this because it's so darn cool. I want to emphasize again, in SF, we are all men of the gun for the most part. I mean, we, we dig guns. And when we retire or get out or stop serving or whatever the case may be, you'll, uh, you'll have a hard time going to any place. For instance, here I am in Florida, and I am just due south of MacDill Air Force Base, where SOCOM happens to have its headquarters. And this place is, is absolutely rife with retired former SOF and SF guys or folks who didn't retire, but they simply got out after a while, or folks who were still in the reserves, in this case, 19th and 20th Special Forces Group, serving near the flagpole at McDill Air Force Base at SOCOM and CENTCOM. You'll go to a range, the closer you are there, you're probably going to find former SF guys, and most of those former SF guys are going to be very accomplished pistoleros, riflemen, things like that, because it's a lot of fun to do, and it's a skill set that is a talent stack that one develops over a lifetime to achieve mastery. But the problem with this is that, as I mentioned earlier, there are plenty of other organizations. I mentioned the 11 Bravos in the U.S. Army, the 0311 infantrymen in the U.S. Marine Corps. I didn't make mention of the Ranger Regiment, which may be one of the finest repositories of small unit infantry talent stacks on planet Earth right now as we speak who can do all of this stuff with a plum. They train to it with a plum. And you will notice that despite the fact of all of those that I listed, SF still continued to ignore its primary mission, which was foreign internal defense, unconventional warfare, because they did DA because it's bloody sexy and that's what they did. So here is my plea for the organization. This is what I'm asking. I'm asking that... USASOC needs a reset. They need a stand down. They need to stop what they're doing right now, not stop their training or anything like that, but reconsider. And what I'd like you to do respectfully is I want you all to go into the ISAFAC, which is the isolation facility. I want you to grab that superb document. That would be the Special Forces Detachment Mission Planning Guide, January 2020. GTA 31-01-003, and what I want you to do 
is I want you all to sit down in a room, in a conference room, over several days, over a week, and use that document to examine and grok what your root mission should be as the superb, unorthodox warriors you were designed to be from the onset can be crafted today with the technology, knowledge, TTP, and everything else that we have. And the plea is, I get it with the guns, and I get it with proficiency, and I'm hoping that the proficiency with rifle, pistol, grenade, and everything else not only meets but exceeds the standards of 11 Bravos in the U.S. Army, for instance, and maybe is a, is a, a peer or on par with the kind of small unit tactics excellence that we see in the Ranger Battalions and the Ranger Regiment. That can be an adjunct to the extraordinarily rare and unique skill set that SF can bring to bear that no one else in the entire panoply of the U.S. Department of Defense community can do, which is conducting unconventional warfare and counter unconventional warfare and getting ready to conduct this kind of irregular warfare rubric against near-peer and peer threats because the possibility that's instantiating itself as we speak is that war with the West, with BRICS countries, with Russia, China, you fill in the blank of who you think it's going to be because a black swan's going to come around sometime and we'll be at war with someone we didn't predict the West would be at war with. And let's take this extraordinarily unique skill set, capitalize on it, hone it to a fine edge, and make it happen, and stop relegating it to that Raiders of the Lost Ark massive warehouse at SOCOM where nobody pays attention to this skill set. We do this to the hazard of our ability in the future to win the conflicts that America is going to be involved in. So if one examines, for instance, the fact that since 1945, not only has America not won a conflict, but the, I, I would say, the, the, the almost willful neglect of exotic skill sets that we can take in vanilla special operations forces and especially U.S. Army special forces, because in the end, and I don't mean to conflate this and make it sound easy because none of this is easy. All of this is hard, but it isn't necessarily difficult if you plan it correctly. And that's that the act of foreign internal defense, where mission after mission conducted by special forces planet-wide going to friendly nations in permissive environments where we are invited by the host armed forces to train them in the various things, everything from the basics of infantry conduct and how to conduct small unit tactics to the very exotic and exquisite skill sets of combat swimmers, combat scuba, high altitude low opening, high altitude high opening, parachute operations, and this kind of synchronization effort, modern communication sets like, like what our 18 Echoes, the comms guys do, and all of these things, all of these extraordinarily valuable skill sets that are leveraged in a pretty damn good way when it comes to the conduct of FID, those are a fit as a building block to make unconventional warfare and counter-unconventional warfare in non-permissive environments in future conflicts more doable because we will pay attention to it. It is my understanding 
from talking to the rank and file in the SF underground and at SF organizations. It's simply not done because direct action is something that they got drunk on for, for now when we look at it, we were astride Iraq and Afghanistan for nearly two decades, if not over two decades. And what we see in Afghanistan, for instance, is that 1996, the Taliban takes over. And now we have the fall of two years ago with the surrender and rapid departure from Afghanistan proper by American forces, leaving behind tens of billions of dollars worth of equipment and leaving behind many of the people who we made promises to that they would remain safe as long as we were there. And we not only denied that promise, but we turned our backs on it. And then you look at Iraq, and you look what happened in 2014, 15, 16, and 17 with ISIS. You look what's happening now, where with the, I think we've got something still like 5,000 troops who remain uninvited in Iraq conducting their operations, being asked by the Iraqi government again and again to leave. And, of course, the forces won't. So here's my message to Garcia. Look that up if you don't understand the homage. SOCOM needs to pay attention to unconventional warfare and counter unconventional warfare, take it seriously, and use the irregular warfare initiative that they inaugurated, I think it was either last year or the year before, take just a slice or a little bit of that capital. I'm certain that it's tens of millions of dollars that is being spent on that irregular warfare initiative and confine it to the increase and development and nurturing of the talent stacks that make the US Army Special Forces, and by extension, other forces that would assist them, capable unconventional warfare operators, because by the way, they're not. Now, as with all things, if there are members of the vanilla soft community, specifically USASOC, and specifically US Army Special Forces, who can correspond with me and talk me off the ledge and say, oh, no, no, we've got this. We conduct unconventional warfare, not only in an exquisite way, but here is the historical success story that we have to doing this. And I hear many of the older crusty vets talking about the CIDG organizations in the Hmong and Montagnard Hill Country in Vietnam saying that, well, we did this. We did the, Well, what you did is you created strategic hamlets in which you had a very reliable lifeline to cover forces and air support and logistical forces and things like that, you weren't exactly conducting things behind enemy lines. Now, in Laos and Cambodia, in some of the adjacent conflicts that were used during the Vietnam conflict, one can make a really rickety case for that. But you will note that no efforts were made to go into North Vietnam proper the mouth of the lion, the belly of the beast, to conduct these kind of force multiplier operations and, and such. I remember there was this notion that we were going to conduct, when I was in Okinawa, Japan, we were going to t conduct strategic reconnaissance where we were going to take these brave young men and 8, 10, 12-man team would be heliported in via an, an MH-60 penetrator aircraft, dropped off near a hopefully cash site that was still viable to conduct strategic reconnaissance to look at and report on what was going to be the primary north-south route of the three that were extrapolated by 8th Army for the North Korean forces to breach the border and come down and take out Seoul and other cities in there. 
When we examined it and we did the logistical laydowns and we did the calculations and we got out our target intelligence packets and we looked at what would happen, what we discovered is that if they had 10 to 14 days behind enemy lines, they were relying because caches have run out and whatever organic logistics they had brought in with them humping on their backs to do and conduct their special and strategic reconnaissance activities and they're ready to come home when we looked at the operational readiness rate for MH60 penetrator aircraft who would come in to fetch them, they were all gone, and they were told they would have to hoof it out. Obviously, this is impossible. And what makes it even more impossible, and we're talking in the 1990s here, is that the unit had not been training on unconventional warfare proper. So I would love for smart folks from the community, maybe from JSAL, maybe from SOCOM, maybe from USASOC, reach out to me and let me know that, oh, no, we've got this. Unconventional warfare is not only something that we train to standard, that we're constantly looking at and trying to hone that edge and make it so that we can do it in an extraordinarily effective manner, and also making it so that when unconventional warfare efforts are taken up, that those men who are on the ground conducting those efforts have the assurance that if they get in a bind or they get in trouble, we will do everything in our power to fetch them. For instance, one of the beefs that I have with what the Marines have doing in, been doing in their existential self-immolation by concentrating on the Pacific theater to the detriment of everything else that they've done historically since their formation in the 18th century is that they have this idea of stay-behind forces or stay-in-place forces where you're going to have these Marines, these missileers who will be on the second or third island chains proximate to the Chinese coast, and they will be lobbing munitions from these sites, but they'll be doing it in a fashion where once they lob the munition, you better get out of there because the Chinese have a very sophisticated A2AD surveillance effort where when something is launched in that second and third island chain, they have the counter-battery capacity to know where that salvo came from, and they will put metal on target if we're engaged in a hot war with them. Well, my question when I talked to some of my Marine colleagues wasn't about going to war or any of that or being in a hot war with them and conducting the stay-in-place forces with Marine missileers and munitions and whatever it was they would use. My concern was twofold. Number one, logistics. How do you get it there stealthily? No answer. This is all about force design 2030, which was the abortion that Commandant Berger foisted on the Marine Corps, which could possible likelihood destroy the Marine Corps as it is today as a result of the shoddy thinking that went into the whole thing and the fact that they didn't entertain any countervailing or contrarian viewpoints on the adoption of Force Design 2030. But it goes to something even more basic than logistics, and that's this. Let's suppose it's peacetime, but we have to extrapolate into wartime. How do you conduct casualty evacuation operations in a stealthy manner in the Pacific? The bottom line is you can't. And by the way, and the Japanese are the, um, they're, they're probably the patient zero and the very best practitioners on planet Earth of this, seaplanes. Unless you're using submarines and submarine forces to extract, infill, exfill these forces on those second and third islands of these young American Marines who are going to be in the fray and in the hazard conducting these what I think are ill-conceived operations, that's a very expensive way to do it. Seaplanes is a possibility, but then again, 
we live in an environment now that is nothing like World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, or any of the warfare that we conducted in the 20th century because we have an intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance panopticon, this kind of umbrella organizational capability that's even available to non-near-peer and peer combatants in the 21st century to know what you're doing no matter how stealthy you may think that you are. All the extraordinary amounts of money, for instance, that are spent on the F-35 abortion in its Alpha, Bravo, and Charlie permutations. Bravo and Charlie would be the Navy and Marine permutations for using F-35s on carriers. Well, stealth aircraft is all well and good as long as no nothing, be they fuel pods or additional weapon systems or PGMs, are mounted on stanchions on wings or below the fuselage or whatever, and then it's no longer a stealth aircraft. But all stealth aircraft can be detected by long-range radar. Look it up. So my plea is, as with so much martial and military malpractice that I see the Pentagon engaging in on a consistent basis, here we have the smartest guys outside of the OSD, SOCOM, where everybody is good-looking and intelligent and they do their things with a plum, and they're not paying attention to what makes, in this case, U.S. Army Special Forces so bloody unique and valuable so that this very same bloody unique and valuable Army Special Forces can do things that many other forces are perfectly capable of doing. Let's stop that and get back to the basics. So a little bit of housekeeping. I will be returning in June to the postgraduate school in Monterey in California for the Military Operations Research Society annual symposium at which I am a chair for one of the working groups. Two of the papers that I'm working on for that one is entitled Nagorno-Karabakh, A Dark and Robotic Future, where I'm going to talk about the fall of 2020 when the, Ar the Azer Azerbaijanis and the Armenians went to war with each other and why we need to pay very special attention to what happened then as far as UAVs, little green men, preparation of fires, and hybrid and gray zone warfare. And the other paper I will be delivering is on the Russian strike reconnaissance complex. And I wanted to do a shout out to Lester Grau, my friend and colleague at the Foreign Military Studies Office, who I consider to be a national treasure here in the United States when it comes to military analytics. At my Substack page, I will post a link to his 18-page PDF from 2018, 18, 19 pages, on this very thing and what I'll be talking about. I urge all of you to read it because what the U.S. is lacking and the West is lacking is the ability to do what Nathan Bedford Forrest talked about during the War of Northern Aggression and being there with the fastest and the mostest, where you're able to deliver steel on target in a fashion that would emulate what one of the Russian generals was talking about in 2019 and 2020 where they think that they have a time on target in their ISR complex, that Russian strike reconnaissance complex, of 10 seconds or less if everything is in place and where it has to go. And if you pay very particular attention and special attention to what's happening at that raging periphery between the Russian forces in the east of Ukraine and the Ukrainian forces, the Russians having defeated three entire Ukrainian armies in less than 24 months, 
you will see how this has become a way for the Russians to demonstrate and probably use this Marshall Laboratory as a means to improve their ability to put steel on target. So I'll have that along with some other references for this episode at my Substack page. I would really enjoy if my listeners reached out to me and provided comments or requests or recommendations or we could have discussions on the Substack page. It's one of the reasons why I put it up there. You can reach out to me again at cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. That email address will be in the Substack comments. And again, I wanted to thank all of my listeners. I also wanted to reiterate my shout out to JU and JS, my SF brothers. I am so blessed to have such smart friends. And uh, JS, thanks for introducing me to JU. And we have many things to talk about in the future. So thanks for listening. This is Bill, out.